Well, it is summertime, and it's heating up pretty good now, and uh, had some good weather over the past weekend, but, but uh, it, is, it is summertime, and so we, we normally uh, at Harvest Point don't do many um, series in the summer because people are traveling so much, it really, there's no continuity, and so it's more like a hodgepodge of topics that we end up covering, which has kind of been the last few Sundays. And most of the uh, sermons that I'll be doing over the course of the summer will be more topical sermons, although they'll be based in the Bible or springboard from certain passages. Um, And one of them is from Acts chapter 17. So if you will turn with me to Acts chapter 17, and we'll start reading in verse 16. Now, the other week, uh, thinking in my children's chat, I asked them what their favorite Bible story was, and I started thinking about some of my own favorite Bible stories, and there are many. Uh, I seem to seem to act like every one of them is, is one of my favorites, but truthfully, this is one of my favorites uh, for Paul, alright? So just to get kind of, you know, here's one character out of the Bible who's one of my favorite characters, which is Paul, and then here's one of the, my favorite stories about Paul in the Bible. It is a fascinating Little little story here that we find um, in Acts chapter 17. Now remember, Luke, who was a physician by trade, but a missionary alongside Paul, he is the only Gentile writer in the entire New Testament. Maybe in the entire Bible, as far as we know. He's the only Gentile writer that we can identify for sure. And he wrote about a third of the New Testament. He wrote Luke and he wrote Acts. So you see already in the New Testament this unity between Jew and Gentile that the Spirit has been given to all people. Praise be to God, that's what we celebrated on Pentecost. Now, here's what Luke says here about Paul as he is in Athens. Notice these words here as we start in 16 of chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, so he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this... He has given us assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this matter. So Paul went out from the midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Amen. Let us pray. Jesus, thank You for Your Word. We pray now that You would apply Your Word to our hearts so that we can move from this place spreading Your name throughout the land. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is in Athens. Now, he's not in Athens, Alabama, you realize. But he's rather in the Greek city of Athens, that great city that had already been conquered by several, but again was conquered by the Romans. And even so, they allowed the uh, Athens people of Athens and uh, living there to be under control as long as they were controlled. And so they had the uh, Acropolis up northwest of where the Areopagus was, which the Areopagus is just really a rock. It's a big rock formation. And they would go up there and have their high court. So when we talk about going and having our high, you know, hey, take it up to the high court, they literally meant the high place in Athens, which was the Areopagus. Remember, for pagans, for polytheistic-minded people, uh, the higher you get, the closer you are to the gods. And this is where also several gods were apparently put on trial for murder. Uh, But that's another story. Our story finds us here with Paul. And I love this because it's, it's... Really what I want to do this morning is show us that we also live in Athens... Literally, some of us in Athens, Alabama, like me. This is where it struck me, you know, as I, as I reread this story, I'm thinking, you know, wow, what if Paul went to Athens, my Athens, you know, the one that I have a physical address in? 
you know, what would that look like? And here's, here's what it looks like. Paul was waiting. Notice here. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, who was he waiting for? Silas and Timothy. So they had been caught up in persecution somewhere else. They had shipped Paul off so that he wouldn't create more persecution. Uh, he was kind of a, uh, um, a fiery dart. And so that when he went to a place, it embroiled and persecuted. And so they moved him out of there. They got him out of there. So he went to wait in Athens. Now, he didn't just sit back and say, Whoo, finally got out of that persecution. Glad to be out of that. Let me kick back for just a second and relax a little bit here. No, no, of course not. Waiting in the Bible is always an active type of waiting, isn't it? Jesus tells us to wait for Him, wait for the promise of the Father. That doesn't mean just relax and kick back in the lazy boy. Instead, before the day of Pentecost, what did they do? They went up and fasted and prayed. That's what their waiting looked like. Here is what the waiting looked like for Paul, was that he purposefully and intentionally began to spread God's Word. You know, our job as Christians is never over until it's over for us. In other words, we work until we die. We work until He comes. There is a story in the Scripture where it says, you know, two are working in the field. One is taken, one is left. We want to be working when Jesus comes back. We don't want to be laid up doing our own stuff, building our own kingdom, or God forbid, holding the enemy's weapon. We wait to know God's will, but that doesn't mean we stop working. Sometimes you have to stop. Sometimes in life you can't move forward with decisions until you are sure from God. And that's, that's okay. I mean, some major life decisions are going to take prayer and fasting, just like before the day of Pentecost. And it's not a waiting that is without prayer. It is a waiting in prayer. It is a waiting for God in the means of grace even. As we wait, we wait in ways that we know He can speak to us. So church, prayer, Bible, fellowship, service. These are all ways that we can hear from God. And this is how we wait. And so Paul here, he's waiting on them, but it is an active wait. And he also notices here as he is waiting that the city is full of idols. This wasn't unusual, um, although in Athens they had a lot more idols than some and greater ones because, of course, of the Greek mythology that had come before and all the stories that we continue to still tell uh, even today. Well, I got to thinking about our world and our world also is full of idols. I will be going to a place that has idols nearly on every street corner. Every taxi cab is going to have idols. Waving on the front dash. It won't be a hula dancer. It'll be Krishna, Vishnu, or whoever of their 300 and million plus gods. Idols everywhere. You say, well, <laughs> good thing we don't live there, right? Well, just because we don't call it an idol doesn't mean it's not an idol. What is an idol? It's a representation of God. <laughs> There's something that Dr. Oswald, um, who I'll actually get to see again after many, many years here soon in Michigan, 
Uh, he said something one time that has stuck with me, and it's comical and it's funny, but it's true. And that's why it's probably funny. He said, we in America don't need God because we have Walmart. Isn't that true, though? It supplies all of our needs, doesn't it? We don't really have to pray, Lord, give us today our daily bread. We don't really know what that means. Our daily bread is at Walmart, Publix, Kroger. And because of that, we create idols that represent God. And we worship them. There's a thing in probably all of our homes, I'd be very surprised if you didn't have one. It's an LCD screen, or something of the sort. A black box, which is a television, or a computer. I mean, would we not all be shocked to find that one of us among us did not have a computer or or you know TV, I and mean, you'd be like, "What a weird person! What do they do?" I mean, what, they just sit in silence. I mean, you, know, you realize that most of the world has lived without a TV and a computer. <laughs> most of the world today still lives without a computer or a TV in home. Now it's beginning to change, but that's the reality: is we create these things and we bow down to them, don't we? Don't we give them our time? And devotion. I mean, they talk about these sitcoms and these, you know, Netflix originals and these sorts of things. They call it binge watching now and, you know, all this kinds of. I'm a devoted follower. It sounds very religious. They memorize the lines, they rewatch it so they can memorize stuff. Doesn't that sound religious? I mean, if we were studied by anthropologists, I dare say they would say that our TV watching, our movie watching, our eating habits are religious. We actually worship that stuff. We cannot live without it. We feel like we'd be in the dark ages without it. Which is the good thing about Lent, by the way. Just a plug for Lent here. Or maybe an unplug for Lent. That's a time to unplug. Lynn is an excellent time to say, you know what? Nothing is above God. We need to make sure that in our life, the things that, are, that we think are our amenities, make our life easy, do not become God's. And we become dependent upon them. We only need God, ultimately. Even more than food, Jesus says... Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So, Athens is full of idols, and so is Madison and Huntsville, and and hopefully not your home. What you give your time to, what you devote yourself to, what you are bowing down to in your own private time, those can become idols that represent gods in our life and they must be smashed. In the Old Testament, a king was good or not good along the lines of whether or not he smashed the idols. They were called iconoclasts. Literally, idol smashers. Some of us need to go home today and begin to delete stuff from our life throw stuff away that we know has become a God to us. 
that we are bowing down to and worshiping. Now, we're not doing it in some physical public way. We're doing it in a much more subtle and hidden way, which is what I warned against and the Scripture warned against last week, right? Remember the two brothers? Which one's worse? The one who says it to your face, like they do in India, or the one who subtly does it like we do in America and just acts like we're still nice Christians, even though we have the same types of idols and sin that corrupt our life and will ultimately send us to hell. He also says here, Luke does, that they were spending their time, these Athenians, in nothing else but learning what was new and telling or hearing something that was new. Isn't that true of us too? You say, no, I don't care nothing about philosophy, Marshall. Who cares what the new philosophy book is or, or what's coming down the pike? As far... I'm not talking about that. Don't we spend our time with the new sitcoms, with the new TV, with the new cell phones, with the new technology, and it's all new coming and flooding our world? It, I mean, aren't we too obsessed just like they were? I mean, yeah, they didn't have you know, LG and Samsung smartphones, but they did have new philosophies that they were interested in. And they just sat around all the time online, so to speak, looking up what was new. Don't even have the money, but just want to know what's new out there. I mean, some of the places we spend our time, it's fascinating if we really took inventory. We are obsessed with the new and we must also connect ourselves to what has come before us. You're only here because of what someone did in the past. <laughs> we only believe what we believe because of what someone held for us in the past. The new's okay. I'm not downing the new. Everybody likes the new. But we must, must not become obsessed with it. This is where they were. Telling that old, old story doesn't mean the story is old and outdated. It means it can be up to date for us today. <laughs> also here, Paul stands up in the midst of them. So he was, we're already told that he was actually going out into the marketplace to share about these new ideas. And so they start picking it up. They invite him to the Areopagus. And he stands before them and begins to proclaim uh, some things to them. He says, he says to them here, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And again, I think if Paul came to our Athens, Athens, Alabama, it's, it's still small town America over there, you know, which is why we kind of like to go over there shopping. It's not the hustle and bustle that, that Madison represents often. It's a little more slowed down in Athens. Small town America. Very religious people. Everybody's, you know, hospitality, got it all turned up. And I think, he would, I think he would say the same thing to us. You look very religious here today. But is that where he leaves them? No, he didn't. he's not applauding them. He's warning them. Just like we talked about last week. It's very dangerous for us who live in the Bible Belt just to assume that we're all going to heaven because everybody around us is. To assume that we're Christians just because everybody around us seems to be. 
Jesus says to go and make disciples, the last thing He says is He's ascending into heaven. And really, in the Greek, it's as you go, make disciples. I think Ted Amy talked about this a couple weeks back. As you go, make disciples. In other words, you don't have to be weird about it. People always, always get this wrong. It's like what we said a, a few weeks back about the fishing thing, you know, evangelizing being like fishing. You don't have to go up and just cold turkey and, you know, uh, barrage somebody, you know, berate someone at, at the local Walmart. You don't have to do that. That's, that's not what we're called to do. Instead, it's as we are going, make disciples. So when you go out to eat today, think about how you can make more disciples. One way you can make more disciples just by your presence at a restaurant is by tipping well, by treating the server well. Should we not treat the least of these well, better than ourselves? I mean, what would Jesus do if He was sitting there? Would He complain that He wanted more tea? I'm not saying you can't complain in certain circumstances, but what I'm saying is you must... Treat people as if you're making disciples. Because we are. That is our mission. It's sad to know when, when we've talked to certain servers that, that actually on Sunday is when they get tipped the least. Is that really what we're trying to do? Is that what we're trying to represent? I mean, all these church people flood the place and they get tipped the least on today and probably more complaining if I had to guess. Now, I'm not just harping on eating. I'm saying when you're at the ball field, when you're at ballerina practice or whatever girls go to. I don't, I'm sorry, I, I, I lack in that area. Forgive me. Wherever you go with your children, make disciples. I, I know it's tough. I'm a pastor and it's tough for me to stay in that missional mindset, to be intentional. Again, you don't have to be weird confronting people. Just love people. Share your life with people. We did this when we first moved uh, here to the area. I mean, this is the way the church has been built so far. Jessica and I, we literally just love people. There was no secret formula. We shared the vision and loved people. We let them know we loved them. We showed the love of God to them. Now, look, you can't do it to 40 families. That's not true evangelism. I'm saying pick 10 families that are in your life right now and begin to invest in them the love of God. It's just that simple and yet we don't do it. We get caught up in in the hustle and bustle. We get caught up with our schedules and, and running and running and running. Trust me, I know. We try to run a tight ship, but man, we get behind a lot. And sometimes it's go, go, go. And the tempers are up and who cares about other people? we got to get done what's done, you know? But no, no, no. We're on a mission. We're on a mission. The Holy Spirit wants to reach out through us. And look, even if you get harried, even if you do mess up, you know what the best thing to do is? Apologize. Isn't that also a witness? I mean, I've told the story. I'll tell it again. I'm, you know, coming to church one Sunday morning. I'm running late. You know, the printer is, is, is giving me a hard time. And being slow, so I'm, I'm you know, kind of speeding down uh, Wall Triana and trying to, trying to get the stuff for communion of all things. This is not this morning, by the way. <laughs> Just a disclaimer. 
And so, uh, you know, I kind of come up on this lady pretty, pretty good. And I, you know, I, I didn't know where she was going or whatever. And so, end up, she, she turns into the, the grocery store, star market here where I was turning, right? And, and so, then she just, as soon as she turns in and I turn in with her, she just stops the vehicle in the middle of the road. And I'm like, uh-oh, that's not good. She's probably not happy. Rose down the window, you know. So, I roll down my window and pull up beside her. You know, and, and she, she gives me an earful, you know, and rightly so. And I said, I said, sorry, you know, she just drove off before I could even say anything, you know, parked the car. And then she happened to be walking into the same grocery store that I was. I was like, oh, goodness, I'm going to be getting communion stuff. I'm all dressed up, my church stuff. You know, she obviously, I didn't, don't think, was going to church. But uh, so we're moving about, and I, I meet her again. And I'm trying to avoid her, you know, and, and, and trying to get out. And so I, I try to hurry and get out of there. I'm like, oh, I'm you know, really messed up here, whatever. And so let's just switch. Sweep it under the rug and get out of here. Uh, buy the stuff. Get in my uh, car. And the Holy Spirit says, you, where are you going, buddy? I said, what do you mean? He says, um, you really going to drive off right now? I mean, after you did all that, you're just going to drive off and act like it never happened and tick that woman off on Sunday, my day, and you're going to tick her off. My day. I said, well, um, I guess not. <laughs> so I cut the car off, and I went back in and searched the store until I found her. And I said, you know what? I'm, I'm very sorry that I came up on you so fast on Waltry. And I, I was in a hurry, but it's, it's no excuse, and I just want to apologize to you. Uh, I, I'm truly sorry. And she said, it's okay. I understand. Uh, thank you for coming back and, and apologizing, you know. And so, um, and so my heart was okay at that point. Uh, I, I, could, I was at peace. That's the kind of stuff. It's nothing. It's not rocket science. To be a witness, even when we sin, even when we mess up, it's being truthful. It's being honest. It's taking responsibility, and it's saying, "I'm sorry." Hey, I messed up. Look, we'll all be there. Even in this family of Harvest Point, we'll be there. We'll get in on each other's nerves. We'll say things that are misunderstood. We'll say things that we didn't mean to say. And forgiveness is going to be key. That's where unity is found, is in forgiveness. Wouldn't you rather be a part of a bunch of people who were real than fake? We're part of a real family here. This is a real family. Jessica and I have a real marriage. Which means we really love each other, sometimes very excitedly, you know, and with passion. (laughs) Not always erotic passion. As you go, make disciples. When you're at school, when you're at work. This is what we must be about. This is what Paul was doing. Hey, he's waiting around. He goes and gets something from the marketplace and he begins to share about certain things that mean something to people. Find common ground with people. What other people like and you like, hey, that's common ground. And then work your way into who you are, who your family is, what matters to you. It's not being weird. It's just being relational, intentional. You say, well, you know, how does that even work? Well, I'll give you an illustration, something that, that happened to me yesterday. So, I'm visiting with my family. And, uh, you know, Cassie and the kids are in. And so we, they, they pop on a movie, which is Frozen, which I've not seen uh, until yesterday. So that was my first viewing of the movie. 
heard lots of things about it from a lot of you and on Facebook and elsewhere. And so I heard a lot of good stuff. So I, I came in it with high expectations, and they were met. They were met. Uh, to be honest, I enjoyed the movie. And so as I watched the movie, I thought to myself, wow. This, you know, because I, I, I don't ever watch movies just for entertainment purposes, but rather critically. And I thought to myself, wow, this is... This is something, and the more I thought about it last night and this morning, I thought this this really this story is about. And I actually, you know, not to beef up my movie going skills, but I actually Cassie can vouch for the fact that I called it before it happened, and that was I, she was saying, you know, something's going to happen, whatever. And obviously, you knew something was coming down, and I was like, it's going to be an act of sacrificial love. Before, even before the troll told her that it had to be true love, which was generic in general, I called that it had to be an act of sacrifice. Now, does that mean I'm a seer? That I'm a prophet of... Mo- no. No, I'm not going to get a job. It just simply means I know that to tell a good story, and people had been raving about this story, you have to have sacrificial love at the heart of it. Why? Because that's true love. That's God's love. More specifically, because that's God. He is the good story. He is the good news. He is the true love. And if you're going to tell a good story that people will identify with and say, oh yeah, that's right. We just know it's right. It's not preaching at us, but we know it's right. Why do we know it's right? Because it's at the center and at the very heart of reality sacrificial love the cross the cross Jesus' sacrifice the greatest act that all these other stories are pointing at whispering about even in the myths you have sacrificial love and then after Jesus you still have stories of sacrificial love at the heart of Lord of the Rings at the heart of Harry Potter At the heart of the Chronicles of Narnia. At the heart of the Matrix. Should I go on? You have the same thing which is sacrificial love. Not romantic love. Not self-serving love. But self-sacrificing love. Interestingly, I thought the, story, the song, uh, Let It Go, had to do with freedom. But as she lets it go, she gets more isolated. Why? Because to do it on our own, to try to gain freedom on our own, will only push people away. You say, man, I just wish I had more freedom in my marriage. Freedom in my relationships. Freedom from my job. Freedom from God is what we really want. Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your face? Well, we want to get away. But in getting away, we become isolated and cold, frozen. Interestingly, to piggyback on that, Dante's Inferno, which I've been reading, 
the pic, some of you may know this, the picture of Satan that he finds, you know, is you have nine circles of hell, and as you get down to the ninth circle, guess what? You finally meet Satan. You know what he's doing? He's not with, with a trident. Yeah. Right? Pitchfork, not gum. He's not in burning flames. He's up to his chest in ice. He's frozen. The last circle of hell, the deepest part of hell, is frozen. And he's up to his chest in ice. And every time he flaps these huge, and you know they used to be beautiful, wings, more ice comes. So every time he tries to act on freedom, he only catches himself more. (laughs) Why? Because he tried to be like God on his own terms. You'll either try to be like God on your terms or on His terms. There's only two ways. Don't you know? There's God's way and there's every other way. And every other way leads to entrapment. To our love growing cold, to death, to bondage, to hell. When we do it God's way, which doesn't sound like a free way, does it? It sounds like a very narrow path, doesn't it? A path with guidelines and instructions. But when we do it that way, we'll realize that we're actually free to fly and spread our wings. And He can make us more beautiful than we ever imagined ourselves to be. It always strikes me what Lewis said. He said, every person you ever meet is either becoming the most hellish nightmare ever dreamed or the most beautiful angel ever conceived. All of us are on one of those paths. What's working in your heart, I can't see your heart, only God can. I see your actions. You look very religious to me, like Paul's saying to these guys. But what's brewing in our hearts, the decisions that we make, the the notches that we have on our soul... Those are the real course of our life. Paul calls them to repent because a day has been set for judgment. Did you notice that? The times of ignorance God overlooked. There was a time in your life that He overlooked. You didn't know. As a child, as these precious children, a lot of stuff they don't know. That's okay. He overlooks it. I overlook a lot of stuff in my son's lives. But some things I do not overlook. Little grammatical things that they say, I love for them to have it wrong. Why would I lo- Because I love, I love their innocence. I love it. It makes me sad when I hear correct grammar in my home. I know they're getting older and smarter. I mean, it makes me sad when Jackson knows more math than me already. 
That's not saying much, but he calls them now to repent. You see that? Verse 30, he commands all people everywhere to, in other words, everyone is without excuse now. There is no excuse for us to remain in sin. Remain stuck in the ice. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man. So everybody is going to be judged by righteousness by a man. Who is that man? Well, we're told, Jesus. It's Jesus. It's not the Jesus you made up in your mind. It's more along the lines of the Jesus that John the Revelator saw. You remember? On the banks of the the island Patmos. His eyes were flaming like fire. Voice of many waters. White. Brilliant. You can't even look at Him like the sun. He fell as a dead person. John had spent over three years with Jesus. Talking with Him. Sleeping in the same house. Eating. And now He's on His face. He's on His face before Jesus because He's high and exalted. He's not the idol we've made Him. He is who He is. That's actually what Yahweh means. He is who He is. Paul calls Him to repent and He calls us to as well. Are you waiting for Jesus to come back and just kicking back, that's not our mission. It's not our mission. That's not the way we wait. Do you have idols in your life? In your private life? Idols that you keep very protected from everybody else, but you go to them in times of distress. Are we obsessed with the new? Living life from one thing to the next, materialist. Are you making disciples? Have you ever? Let's be intentional. Let's be prayerful for those around us. Just as Paul stood up here and some were converted, did you notice? Some mocked, some continued to question, but others believed. That will be the same result in our life. Not everybody's going to convert first time you share with them. That's okay. Did you? <laughs> Hasn't it take you a long process to get to where you are now? Don't you still need some more converting to go? It's okay. God will handle that. You do your part. I do my part. You be a witness at your work. I, I'm not there. I don't have access. You be a witness at your ball field. In your neighborhood. In your family. And our reward will be great in heaven. Nobody else will see it but Jesus. And that's okay. That's alright. We work for Him anyway. Not for man's applause. Amen.